Well, since many of you have uh, already thumbed through your index to look for the book of Jude, judging by the hands that were raised or not raised about uh, the book, the second to last book in the Bible, uh, we'll be turning to Jude this morning. So go ahead and turn there just before the book of Revelation. And we will uh, read just the last two verses and cover uh, basically the end of this a single chapter book. This is uh, continuing in our series on doxology. And this is a doxology that's filled with praise for a God who keeps us. And that will be the focus this morning. Uh, please stand if you're able, not out of uh, respect for the one who reads, but for the one who is speaking now to us through his word. This is Jude 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace and this doxology, this word of praise to you. And by the power of that grace, transform our hearts into people who know you and follow you and trust you with our whole lives more and more each day. We ask you these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Ian Harbour, uh, writing for the Gospel Coalition a few years ago, described his journeys away from the truth of Scripture and what he learned on what he calls his journey of deconstruction. Maybe you haven't heard that phrase before, uh, deconstruction, but it's how many today are describing their reevaluation of what they believe, particularly a certain kind of reevaluation that's becoming more and more common. You hear it said, I'm deconstructing, I'm deconstructing my faith. Harbor's story is one of the many uh, in sort of this movement that you could call the exvangelical movement, with people referring to themselves as exvangelicals, as formerly evangelical and now something else. Uh, many calling themselves uh, exvangelicals, perhaps most who use this phrase, um, aren't simply reevaluating some things about evangelicalism that maybe are due for a reevaluation. Uh, there's certainly room to reevaluate one's beliefs and uh, look at them in the light of Scripture. We should all be willing to do that. Uh, but this is not that. No, what we have here is so often this rejection of the faith or redefining it such that it is really unrecognizable as the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Harbor lists some of the sticking points for him that led him on his own journey of deconstruction. Uh, it's, it's hard to line up against these uh, sticking points that he had. It's hard to judge people on this journey because of some of the problems and, uh, that, that Harbor observes here. So listen to Harbor's questions that he had. I think they're valid questions. He says, what about the contradictions and scientific inaccuracies in certain biblical stories? How have we shrugged at the passages where God commands Israel to slaughter their enemies and their enemies' children? How could a loving God condemn his beloved creation to eternal torment? What about all the other religions? Aren't they all saying basically the same thing? 
Those are legitimate questions, legitimate questions for which Harbor and others are right to expect answers. He had other questions of a different kind. He said, why did our policies seem to particularly disadvantage poor and marginalized communities? Why was it common in the church to see Christians degrade immigrants made in the image of God who were simply seeking a better life in my Texas town? As important as abortion is, surely we're supposed to care about those suffering after birth as well, right? These are all tough doctrinal questions. They're legitimate social questions and ethical questions. But these were questions which his Christian community was at times unwilling to entertain and at other times unable to give a clear answer to. Uh, So he began his journey away from the truths in which he had been raised. Uh, And this movement is more than just a thing with young people. You might think this is a kids these days kind of thing, uh, but it's not. Uh, The pop Christian band DC Talk of Jesus Freak fame started in 1987, the same year Dan Warren started. Their former lead singer, Kevin Max, recently announced that he still believes in Christ in some way, what he calls the universal Christ, but he's on this journey of deconstruction. Where will the journey end? The jury's still out. So maybe you're thinking, oh, well, that's contemporary Christian music for you. Could have, could have told you that would happen. No, this isn't just an out there problem. Uh, it's not. I'm sad to say that I have uh, watched classmates of mine from seminary walk this same road and end up in this same place. And I only say that to underscore that this isn't a problem out there. It's a problem here and even in what we might call our circles in our denomination. So do you know what Harbor discovered uh, when he started searching for answers? Uh, He discovered plenty of people prepared to give him answers uh, and to offer him another version of Christianity uh, tailor-made for the doubts that he was experiencing. Just a YouTube video click away, as he puts it. He says, the Christian tradition I grew up in for all the wonderful things it gave me was not prepared for a generation of kids with access to high-speed internet. And Harbor's journey led him straight into the arms of progressive Christianity. Maybe that's a familiar box for some of you, or maybe uh, it's not, maybe not for everyone. Don't hear progressive and merely think politics. Uh, This is uh, really this false religion that masquerades as Christianity. Christian singer-songwriter Alyssa Childers, who ended up on a similar journey as Harbor, uh, she defines progressive Christianity's view of Scripture in this way. She says, Progressive Christians view the Bible as primarily a book about, or a human book, and they emphasize personal conscience and practices rather than certainty and beliefs. They are also very open to redefining, reinterpreting, or even rejecting essential doctrines of the faith like the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, and his bodily resurrection. Childers also said this, and I think this is a great observation, surely there is a good reason that Christians have believed in this for 2,000 years. We can't be the first generation to ask this question. The Apostle Jude would agree. He calls this thing Christians have believed for 2,000 years, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude writes this letter to condemn heretics of his day who were set on redefining the faith on their own terms, but in reality having nothing true to offer anyone. Just as one evangelical put it, uh, just a sea of uncertainty. As if that were a good thing. Welcome to my sea of uncertainty. Follow me on YouTube. Subscribe to my TikTok. 
This is why the, I take all this time to introduce this. Uh, I would not be surprised if someone sitting here this morning, today, is concerned with those very same questions that Harbor had. I don't know if that surprises you, but if it does, maybe that's part of the problem. It very well could be something that uh, some of you are thinking about. Maybe some of these stories uh, that we've just heard raise questions for you. In fact, if anything, uh, I would be glad to know that you have those questions and that you would still come and sit in a row of chairs at a Presbyterian church that holds to a doctrinal statement written in the 1600s. I, I mean that with all sincerity. I would be so glad to know that you have those questions and that you're here. Uh, young people in your community, uh, they know this stuff is a big deal. Uh, thankfully, uh, neither Harbor's journey nor Childer's journey was a one-way street, which I think is of some comfort to you parents who may be wondering about your uh, nearly college-age children or your children who are away at college and wondering if they might go this route as well. It doesn't have to be a one-way street. They found communities of Christians who believed the Bible and who were willing to entertain the tough questions. They were willing to answer the tough questions, and if they didn't have the answer, they went in search of the answer. But more importantly than that, they experienced, both Harbor and Childers and many others, and maybe even you, they experienced what we're going to be looking at today in Jude's doxology, God's power at work within them and at work for them. So today what I want to do looking at Jude 24 is I want to show you three encouraging descriptions of God's power at work in us and for us. Uh, in the face of false teaching, God's power encourages us as we contend for the faith and continue in our commitment to the faith. His power at work within us and for us, uh, breaking out in this word of glory at the end of Jude's letter. It's a worthy topic for doxology. So three encouraging descriptions of God's power. First, God alone can prevent us from stumbling. Second, God alone can present us spotless. And third, God alone has the power to save us. So, first encouraging truth about God's power. God alone can prevent us from stumbling. Uh, Jude's word of glory, praising God for his power at work within us, and it worked for us, opens with these encouraging words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. If you've ever memorized anything from the book of Jude, you might know those words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I passed out at a wedding one time. Thankfully, it wasn't my own wedding. That would be super embarrassing. It was a friend's wedding. It was a hot Mexican summer. Uh, people were crammed shoulder to shoulder in this sweltering little church with a tin roof and brick walls. Uh, I was standing at the front of the church, standing as still as a statue, holding my guitar because I was playing in the service. I had my legs locked the entire time, and I see some knowing nods. You know where this is going. I was already the whitest person in the room, and I was becoming whiter by the second. The recessional music played. I actually thought we were done, and they said, we're going to play one more song. <laughs> I'm not going to make it. Uh, everyone stood to applaud the happy couple. They turned to watch them depart, and Dan crumples like an accordion. Down for the count. The first thing I asked when I woke up is, where's my guitar? I thought I smashed it. At least I had my priorities straight. <laughs> Only my pride was hurt, and that's kind of the point. Uh, there's a lesson in that. 1 Corinthians 10.12 was never truer for me in that moment. And it's true for you in this moment, too. Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. 
What keeps a harbor or a childers or you or me from stumbling such that we're no longer merely doubting Christians, but we've proven ourselves to be heretical, immoral apostates, uh, deserving of Jude's unflinching rebuke? It's the power of God. His power alone can keep you from stumbling. I want to make two observations about this first encouraging truth. Uh, that God alone prevents our stumbling. And the first is this, you can only stumble from a place you once stood. Maybe that's kind of logical, but it's worth pondering for a minute. You can only stumble from a place you once stood. Uh, In the case of the false teachers that Jude exposes in this letter, it's clearly not the case that they ever stood in the faith and then stumbled from it in the first place. No, they were never standing in the truth to begin with. Jude says in verse 19 that these false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. Now Jude, writing with apostolic authority uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he certainly has enough clear guidance to say clearly, these people are devoid of the Spirit. But I think we can still determine whether or not someone is devoid of the Spirit in their teaching. We can still point out a false teacher, and assess teachers claiming to be ministers of the gospel. You can recognize them by a couple of things. You can recognize false teachers by what they teach. Uh, The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He then raises the question of the doctrine of incarnation. John does in his letter. It's being denied by false teachers in this circle. And basically he says, do these people deny the fundamental truths of the faith? Yes, they do. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. See, he's not even talking about complicated matters about maybe we could, you know, some of these things we might expect a little debate about. He's talking about fundamental truths of the faith. Paul said pretty clearly, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. That's what the false teachers that Jude addresses were saying, just sin, just do what you want. It was this, this libertine spirit, this attitude that it's okay, there's plenty of grace, do what you will. That's what was happening when Jude writes this letter. The, these false teachers were, were perverting grace into license for sin, license to live an immoral life. And this life that resulted in their, from their teaching was unrecognizable as the life of a Christian as one who holds to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we can recognize false teachers first by what they teach, whether they agree with what is clearly revealed and central to the faith. We can also recognize false teachers uh, by the fruit that their teaching bears. Uh, The fruit their teaching bears. Does the gospel that they preach uh, have have the power to save? Does it have the power to transform? Or is a sea of uncertainty as good as it gets. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15 to 16, that you can recognize false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So what fruit does what they teach bear in the lives of those who follow them? Jesus goes on to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one who will enter the kingdom. True preaching of the pure and unperverted gospel will bear the fruit of repentance and obedience and a changed life that clings to Jesus in all things. It will give evidence by this new way of life that this teaching is true. 
this new way of life among those who follow it. So when you watch the YouTube videos or the TikTok channels of the progressive Christians saying what they will, watch them, listen to the questions, but also look at the lives that they show and also the lives of those that follow them and ask, where is the Spirit here? Where is the Spirit? What does it teach? And what fruit does it bear? Harbor, just to return to his story for a moment, uh, he noticed something in his journey deconstructing the faith. It was around the 2016 elections that he noticed something really rattling to his newly minted progressive Christian understanding of things. Tracking with some of the leaders of the movement that he was following and being influenced by, he noticed this. They became increasingly lockstep with the progressive platform of the political left. Sexual ethics, reproductive rights, social justice, just go down the list. That's what he noticed in these people saying, this is right. He said, if you didn't toe the party line of progressive orthodoxy, you were an outcast, a heretic. In fact, he says, it reminded me of the conformity of conservative Christians to whatever the Republican Party told them to believe. This is Harbor as he assesses the struggle of his faith. And I think that's a real problem that leads many, if not most people, uh, whose deconstruction stories I've read and listened to personally on this trajectory away from the faith. So if and where that shoe fits, conservative Christians need to wear that shoe. But Harbor's putting his finger on something that I think we always need to ask ourselves when assessing what any given church leader or teacher uh, teaches or preaches. Does it truly lead to a life that follows the will of the Father in heaven? Or is it a redefinition of the faith that conveniently looks a lot like the convictions they brought to the table to begin with? That's an important question to consider. Does this adhere to the fundamentals of the Christian faith? And what kind of fruit does this teaching bear? Or does it really just fit nicely in the categories that I already believe anyway? Does it give salvation and the spirit-given aroma of a changed life in Christ or something else? So you can only stumble from a place you once stood. As John says about the false teachers in his context, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all, they all are not of us. That's 1 John 2, 19. God alone can prevent you from stumbling. You can only stumble from a place you once stood. One more observation about this first truth, and that's uh, that God uses means to keep you from stumbling. God uses means. Uh, maybe the discussion about false teachers has you thinking. You're thinking, okay, good, that's good. We can recognize false teachers by what they teach and the fruit that they're teaching bears. But what about me? Where does that leave me? Sometimes I have doubts of my own. Some of these questions that a person like Harbor asked, I have those questions. Some of the things that I've grown up hearing in this church, I have questions about them too. Where does this leave me? I have my own doubts. What do I do with that? Look at Jude 20 and 21. Jude 20 and 21. Jude says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You see, the call to build yourselves up in the most holy faith, uh, to pray in the Spirit, to keep yourselves in the love of God, none of these things are at odds with the fact that God is the one who prevents you from stumbling because God uses means to keep you from stumbling. Like the preaching of the word, 
and prayer and the sacraments and encouraging one another daily, Christian fellowship, all of these things are designed to keep you in the faith and to build you up in the faith. There's an old uh, country song, maybe you've heard it, that says, me and my Jesus, we got our own thing going. It's nonsense, totally bonkers. It's not true. Uh, don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. That's utter nonsense. I won't sing it with the country twang that's playing in my head, but even if you don't like country music, you can live that kind of Christianity, and I'll tell you, it's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. It's not true. That's why our confession of faith, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says that outside of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Ordinarily, God uses means to save us and to keep us from stumbling. This happens in the church where his word is faithfully proclaimed, where the sacraments of the supper and baptism are faithfully administered, where prayers are offered to God by ministers of his gospel and by his people, where Christian discipleship and community are found. Maybe you were saved sitting at home listening to a podcast or watching sermons on TV or discussing the gospel with your friends in an out there context, and that's amazing. But now you're here, and that's the point. I would venture to say that most people who have left the faith and wandered from the faith first wandered from the place. They first left the church and wandered from it. This place where the, the, what Jude calls the most holy faith is built up week after week in the worship of God according to his word. So it's not a me and my Jesus. It's I will build my church, Jesus says. That's what he says. That's the promise. Remember that young person heading off to college or maybe uh, some of you who God will move to another place for work. Find a church, get in the church, and hold on to the church and don't let go of the church. God uses means to keep us in the faith. Remember that when you think that a podcast or a live stream or a book can substitute what God is doing to keep you from falling, what he does through means within the church, use it, study the Bible. We talked about that at community group this week. Now we have the opportunity for personal devotions. Thousands of years of Christianity did not have that opportunity. It's not one against the other. Use both, use everything you can, but keep yourself in the faith, Jude says. Keep yourself in the faith, and part of that is keeping in the place where the faith is built up. So, first encouraging truth about God's power, God alone is able to prevent you from stumbling. Second truth, God alone is able to present you spotless. Once again, here's Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. If the first encouraging truth about God's power speaks to the need uh, for faith to begin with and the need to make use of those means that God has given to build us up in the faith, uh, this is, uh, gives a lot of hope, I think, this second truth. It gives a lot of hope that he alone is able to present you spotless. And there's hope, I think, here for two kinds of people. For two kinds of people. And friends, given the season that we've been through, we need to hear this today. I had no idea three months ago that I would be preaching this passage and this sermon today. I think God wants us to hear this word. There is hope in that God alone is able to prevent you spot, present you spotless for two kinds of people. Hope for wanderers. That's the first kind of person. Maybe you've gone the route of progressive Christianity or any other distorted version of Christianity. 
Maybe you're sitting here today on a Sunday morning, and that's as far as Christianity goes for you, as far as you're concerned. You've abandoned biblical teaching on this or that doctrine or this or that ethical area, even if you haven't yet abandoned the church pew. Maybe you've celebrated lawlessness thinking it was enlightenment. Maybe you've participated in it. Maybe uh, it's all you've ever known, and you've just been playing church but you've been gripped by conviction of sin and you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you're saying, do I dare approach God with all of this baggage? The people of God have a long history of blowing it. You're not presenting anything new, no unheard dilemma uh, to God when you show up looking like a wreck, looking for mercy. In one place in the Old Testament, which we've read this morning, After this long rebuke of God's people and their sinful ways, God speaks through the prophet Zephaniah and he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And as the people are called to return to their Lord with joy, they're not the only ones singing. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. There's room at the cross for you, friend. There's room for everyone. The one who is mighty to save always calls his people back with singing. He sings over you. He calls you back with joy. When you return, it's joy for you and it's joy for Jesus. So you can return with joy. So there's hope for wanderers. There's hope for another kind of person too. There's hope for rescuers. And those are really the only two categories of Christians that exist. Wanderers and rescuers. Wanderers and rescuers. Jude's instructions about building ourselves up in the faith and keeping ourselves in God's love might sound like this call to isolate ourselves, to build a castle, dig a moat, put hungry alligators in it, and pull up the drawbridge. We love to do that. We love to do that, but that's not all that Jude tells us to do. Jude 22 to 23 says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I like how Michael Green puts it in his commentary. He writes, It is a dangerous thing to live for Christ in an atmosphere of false teaching and seductive morals. It is a hazardous thing to try to rescue men for the gospel out of such an environment. If you get too near the fire, it will burn you. If you get too near the garment stained by the flesh, it will defile you. So here's the question. Green goes on. Is withdrawal the answer then? No. Advance against the forces of evil. Face the dangers involved so long as you are strong in the Lord's might. Such is the thrust and the context of Jude's final verses. It's a hazardous thing to try to rescue men and women for the gospel out of such a godless environment. 
to show mercy, to snatch others out of the fire, to pray hard, to fight with grace, to try and rescue as many people as you can. So Jude reminds us, because of the danger, hate even the garment stained by the flesh. The idea is to keep watch over your own soul as you seek to rescue the soul of someone else. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Ephesians 4.31 and 32 is appropriate because it shows the many ways we can be tempted in our rescue attempts as we go after those wandering sheep. I'll quote it from the King James because that's how I memorized it as a kid in school. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Usually, when we're called to contend for the faith, we puff up our chests and we begin to bellow out condemnations like Jude. And there's a time certainly to call a spade a spade. There's a time for that. But you know what's in short supply that would go a long way uh, for these wandering Christians who think uh, Christians are such big jerks compared to everyone out there saying live your truth and, and do what you will? Jude 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Patience, understanding, kind and clear responses from God's word. Shouting and shunning are no way to win over your child or your spouse or your friend or your colleague struggling with these things. We can only pray that God will give us the sense to know the difference between a ravenous wolf from whom the church needs protection or a weak, doubting, tender, frail Christian who needs love and mercy-giving rescue. It's going to involve putting ourselves in uncomfortable conversations. It's going to require keeping ourselves in God's love. It's going to require keeping a close watch over our own souls as we hear the problems someone else has with the faith or the things that they're doubting and thinking about or the things that they're involved in and an attempt to respond to that with truth and grace. You might be afraid that you'll just be swept away with the current of the day or the rapids of our present crisis if you dive in to save a drowning friend. It's a lot to do in your own strength. It's exhausting. It's spiritually draining. It's a dangerous thing to try to muscle through in your own strength. Thankfully, you're not left to your own power. That's the whole point of Jude's doxology. It encourages us with these descriptions of God's power. God alone can prevent you from stumbling. God alone can present you blameless. This second description that we've just looked at, it gives a nod toward the third and final description of God's power. It's in the word blameless. The word blameless here is a sacrificial word. It means spotless, like a spotless lamb. Remember, it was a lamb without blemish or spot that was needed to make atonement for sin. That's how blameless God is able to present you before the presence of his glory. There's only one reason you can ever hope to stand before God on that last day without smudge or spot, as spotless as a perfect sacrificial lamb. And the only reason you can do that is because of Jesus. That takes us to this final um, description of God's power. Look with me at Jude 25. God alone has the power to save us. He says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time 
and now and forever. Amen. What a place to conclude this doxology. People have asked, is this doxology, this word of glory, uh, is it directed to the Father or is it praising Jesus? My own take is that it is a doxology to God, praising and highlighting the work of the Son, God's work through His Son, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And here at the end of the doxology, we reach this climax with this big reveal. Whose power is at work in you to save you, to keep you from stumbling, and to present you spotless before the presence of God? It's the power of Jesus. God's cleansing work through Jesus was long prefigured when God called his people to turn from their sin. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's long been the prayer of God's people convicted of their sins. Psalm 51.7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And it's the long-awaited promise For those who stand before the throne on the last day, free from their sins because of Jesus. Revelation 7.14, we heard it last week. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice Jude says, to the only God. Someone has said, in the midst of a pluralistic society which confesses that there are many gods and many lords, the confession of the unity of God is truly astounding. This person's writing about the first century, but it could be, he could have been writing about the 21st century. There are so many alternatives offered to you. False gods, phony saviors. We confess one God, only one. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And that one God saw us in our sinful state and he did something about it. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven in the person of the Son. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. His name, He has a name, and His name is Jesus. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. That is the God who saves, and it's the God we serve. It's the God who we confess. This is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Acts 4.12 says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you're looking for answers, if you're confused, This is the one name that can save you. And if you're here this morning, turn to that one name. Turn to Him by faith. Repent of your sins and He will save you. He alone is able to prevent His people from stumbling. He alone is able to present us spotless. And He alone has the power to save. Anything else that calls itself Christianity but exchanges this foundation for a sea of uncertainty isn't Christianity because Jesus offers something better 1 John 5.13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. To that one who can save us, to him be all majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the most holy faith into which we have been brought by the blood of Jesus.
saved through Jesus Christ whom you sent, sanctified by the Spirit applying to us in Christ, in Christ all his benefits. Keep us in the faith. Help us to build a firm foundation and grow even as we lean on the solid rock of Jesus. We pray for so many who are abandoning the faith for a charade of the faith once for all given to the saints. May we be a people that are patient and prepared to entertain challenging questions and challenging situations with mercy and with grace. Willing to admit that we don't always know the answers, we don't always get it right, but we've got a firm grip on Jesus who came to rescue us when we ourselves were wandering. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.